Been beautiful. Uh, we're going to now just spend some time reading the Bible together at City Light every single week. We, we center our time around the Word of God because uh, we believe that God um, speaks to us by the Bible. It's not just, not just a book written thousands of years ago, but it's God's primary way of communicating with us today. And so we're going to read now from Galatians chapter 4, from verse 21 to 31. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother, for it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Well, good morning and welcome. My name is Jeremy. I'm the lead pastor here. Really good to have you with us this morning. And, uh, and we will get into the, the passage that I imagine if you're listening on first reading, sounds a little strange. But as we dive into it, there is plenty for God to teach us through this. Um, but just before we get there, uh, if I could encourage you, over the next little while, we're going to have a few things like lunches after church and more time to connect. Because over the last, well, it's probably going on like two years now, um, being a part of church community has been so dislocated and disrupted that we just want to make the most of a season where we can actually gather together regularly. Um, and as everyone comes out of this second wave of sickness, I don't know, I mean, you're all here, so you've all managed it this week. Um, but, um, but as we do that, to just more and more be drawing together and encouraging one another as a community, it'd be a great thing to do. So uh, if you're sticking around, even if it's your first week, feel free to stick around afterwards, get to know some people and enjoy some food together. Uh, and if you are here in a regular part of City Light, we have our AGM, which I know you're all pumped about afterwards. Um, but it is a great time just to reflect on God's grace toward us over this period. Because so often when we, when we pray about things, when we ask of things and God answers, we don't take notice of it and we just carry on with our lives. When He doesn't answer things, we get all up in His face about it. But when He answers prayers, we often miss it. And so it's a chance to gather as a church community and reflect on what God has done over this time and is continuing to do and pray towards what God is going to do um, further in our future. But today we're looking at Galatians 4. And as we've said week after week, it's been a real encouragement just seeing God's word at work in this community as we've studied the gospel of grace and just how counterintuitive it is that God would treat us not according to our works or what they deserve, but according to His grace and mercy. And this week is no different. Paul is diving into this idea of the difference between being a people of self-reliance and being a people who trust in God and His promises. See, some of you, I imagine here, would describe yourselves as reasonably self-reliant or independent. And this might have come about for many different reasons. 
It may be the case that your parents tried their best but just weren't particularly attuned to your needs or emotional needs as they were growing up. They didn't notice when you needed help or when you asked for it and they kind of fumbled the ball. And it could be that maybe your parents weren't particularly good at dealing with difficult emotions or things like that. Whatever the reason was, you kind of grew up learning to just take care of yourself. It might have been that you were the child born after the really naughty kid in the family or the kid that had significant high needs. And whatever it was, you kind of learned to be the, the kid who was like, I'll look after myself, I'll take care of myself. And so you learned to rely on yourself. And you learn to take care of yourself in all kinds of situations. And because of that, it's potentially the case that you don't expect much outside help for yourself. You, uh, you know that uh, when you hear the term self-reliance, that seems like a, a virtuous thing. You know that there are people out there who rely on other people and you think that's nice for them. But if they could be a little bit more independent, that would be great. But ultimately, you don't expect people around you to, to provide much help. And so you are what you would call a pretty independent person, a pretty self-reliant person. And if that is you here this morning, just know that you will be the most inclined toward a religious approach to God. The approach that says, here are the rules, here's the situation, here are the consequences, you take care of yourself. And what Paul wants to say is that self-reliance is a trap. That actually this religious mindset of approaching God, like he says to us, I've set up this whole system for you, now you work it out for yourself, is actually a trap. Because as we've seen week after week after week after week, no one will be able to stand before God and say, God, look at what I've done. Declare me righteous based on how I've lived. That there is only one plea before God and it's the plea of grace to say, don't look at what I've done, but what Jesus has done on my behalf. And so because of that, Paul wants to warn the church here not to lean towards this self-reliance. False teachers have come in and they've told them that the way that you get right with God is, yeah, it's a little bit of Jesus' grace, but mostly it depends on you taking care of it yourself and doing the right things, keeping the right rules, obeying the right laws. But Paul says, no. Now the way of God's people from start to finish has always been the way of trusting in God's promises and in what He can do, not in ourselves and what we can do. It's away from self-reliance, which for so many of us here will be really counterintuitive, and towards faith and trust in God. And so I'm going to pray that as we open up this strange kind of passage this morning, just 10 verses, but with some really interesting sort of bits in it, that God would be opening our hearts by His Spirit to see the depths of His grace toward us in Jesus and the call away from relying on ourselves and trusting and relying on God entirely. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you that you are good, that you love us, that you have poured out your mercy and grace upon us. We thank you that the gospel is a reminder that we are not to depend on ourselves, but to depend on you. So Father, as we open your word, teach us. Teach us what it means to be children of God and to trust in you with our whole heart. And Father, we pray that you would do this for the sake of your holy name. Amen. Now on the surface, this passage looks difficult, almost to the point of just inscrutable. There are all kinds of terms and words in there, and particularly if you're, if you're here and you're kind of new to the Christian faith, or if you're here and you've got questions about Christianity and the Bible, there'll be a lot of terms in here and names and places where you're like, what, what even is going on here? But I think if we dive into it, it's not that hard to understand, 
And with a little bit of an understanding of the story of the Bible, particularly one story in Genesis that Paul is referring to here in the book of Galatians, it becomes pretty clear what he's drawing us toward. And what he's teaching us is that there are two mutually incompatible ways of relating to God. There is the way of self-reliance and there is the way of faith. And there's no mix or alloy between them. You can choose one or the other and one leads to death and one leads to life. But let's start in, in 421 and look at what he says here. It says, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically, these women are two covenants. So Paul starts by saying to this Galatian church, who've started to trust in their own works and in keeping Jewish customs to justify them before God, he said, hey, look, you guys who love the law so much, have you even read it? And he's talking about the Old Testament. Have you read the stories that are in there? And more than that, he says, there is a story of Abraham who had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. That one was born according to the flesh and one was born according to the promise. What on earth is he talking about here? Well, let's dive back into this story, a little bit of context. Abraham was a man, and a very ordinary one at that, and God chose him for no particular reason. He wasn't rich, he wasn't powerful, he wasn't influential, he wasn't a significant figure in the ancient Near East. God just said, that guy. And he said, I'm going to pour out my mercy and grace upon him. And so he takes Abraham, who's a bit of a nobody, and he says to him, through you, for no particular reason, I'm going to build a great nation out of you. Now, whatever opinion you have of religion, almost half the world's population claims some kind of religious heritage to Abraham. So God has certainly come good on that, on that uh, promise, at least from a, a surface perspective. But here he says to, to Abraham, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. And Abraham says, that sounds amazing. Just one problem. I'm heaps old. My wife is heaps old and she can't have kids. So you, you probably backed the wrong pony on this one, God. But God said, no, to demonstrate that I'm the one who will do it and I'm the one who will fulfill his promises, he says, I will make this happen. And so he says to Abraham, you're going to have a child and from that child a great nation will be born and my people will come from you. But he and Sarah wait and wait and wait and over time they don't have a child and they start to lose faith in God's promise. And so what do they decide to do? They take matters into their own hands. Sarah goes to Abraham and says, look, this is never going to happen. God's not going to come through for us. We need to sort this out ourselves. Take for yourself a wife. Her name is Hagar, one of the servants. That's the slave woman referred to here in this passage. And have a child with her. And that will be the son that then can then lead to a family and a nation and so on and so forth. And so they take matters into their own hands. And what's the result? Disaster. Complete disaster. Now, as a helpful little detour here, if you are a thinking person and you've read the Old Testament maybe once or maybe more than once, you may have noticed that in there, there's a lot of polygamy. There are people who have many wives. And you think, now, what's the deal with that? Because currently Christians don't believe that that's actually what marriage is meant to be. I can tell you, I have just one wife. That's what's happening in our church and what we uphold. And so if you've read the Bible, whether you're a Christian or not, this might be a question that stands out to you. And the answer is actually a pretty simple one. In Genesis, God lays out the pattern for humanity and for marriage. And he defines marriage in Genesis 2. He says it's one man, one woman, and the two become one flesh. 
Not three become one, not five become one, two become one. That's God's pattern for this relationship, this covenant. And then in the New Testament, on the other side, you have Jesus affirming that same teaching and you have the letters in the New Testament affirming that same teaching over and over and over again. And in between, in Genesis, you have all these relationships described where someone might have many wives. And the reason for this is that Hebrew literature is a lot more subtle than our Western literature. You very rarely get like a narrative voice in Genesis that said, so-and-so did this and that was bad, right? It just, it, you just read it and you're meant to put it together. You get the definition of marriage in Genesis 2. And then what you see is all these people who have multiple wives. And what's the result every single time? Disaster. And so it's meant to be, look, this is God's design. And look what happens when humankind departs from God's good design. It's disaster, one after the other after the other. And this is the first one in a series of them. You see that here, Abraham and Sarah decide to take matters into their own hands and depart from God's promise, and it's a disaster. What happens? Sarah becomes incredibly jealous of Hagar. She starts treating her cruelly and being incredibly unkind to her. And eventually, Hagar is so fed up with her that she runs away. And at this point, Sarah says, that's good, keep her away from us. And at this point, God has to intervene. So Hagar is a single mum in the ancient Near East with no options in front of her. And what happens? God comes up to her and says, I'm going to look after you. I'm going to do everything that your husband should have done but didn't do. I'm going to make sure that you guys are safe, that you have enough food. I'm going to make sure that a great nation comes from your son. I'm going to take care of everything. And then... God goes back to deal with Abraham. And he goes back to him and says to him, Abraham, you've made a mess of things. Don't worry, I've looked after Hagar and everything else like that. I've taken care of all of that, but now you're going to trust me and you're going to get circumcised. Now at that point, Abraham would have been like, I get the first two points. So uh, circumcised, that's going to happen really? Now, you might, have, you might have wondered at various times, because it comes up again and again in the book of Galatians, what is the deal with circumcision being this sign of the covenant in the Old Testament? What is it to do, why has this happened right at this point? You may have wondered this as you've looked through the Bible as to why it is that this was a, a sign of the covenant and of trusting in God. Well, the, the clearest explanation of this that I've heard is that Abraham tried to further God's promises by not trusting in him. And so God clips Abraham back at the very place where he tried to further God's promises on his own. And it's a reminder to him again and again that he is to trust God. It's a constant reminder to trust God and not yourself. And so he gives him this sign. And so here Paul says, look, Hagar becomes the sign and the symbol and her son of kind of self-reliance and trying to do things your own way and not trusting in God's promises. And the other son, Isaac, who eventually comes when Abraham and Sarah are way too old to have kids, is a symbol of what it means to trust in God and his promises. Paul takes this story and he says he develops it as kind of like an allegory for the two ways that you can approach God and life. One is to take matters into your own hands and to rely on yourself. And the other is to trust God and his promises as counterintuitive as they are. And so that's why he says here in 4.21-27, to he says, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, 
or the son of the free woman was born according to the promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These two women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one, who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those who has a husband. Paul is saying that the flesh is kind of shorthand for self-reliance. And he says here, you can take this story as kind of an allegory. Like there are two ways to approach God. And he says, the present Jerusalem. So Jerusalem at his time while he was alive, many of the people there believed that the way that they would be right by God is by keeping the rules and following the law. And in the end, God would approve them because they had been good people in and of themselves. But he says, no, that is not the way of the people of God. And it never has been from Abraham until now. God's people have been a people who trust in Him and in His strength and in His and rely on Him rather than on ourselves. He says this is not the way. And that's why he finishes with this curious little passage right at the end. I don't know if you noticed it there in the last few verses. Look what he says as a conclusion. He says, Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit. So also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman will not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. Paul kind of extends the metaphor now and says just that these two boys did not get along, Ishmael and Isaac, and just as their mothers did not get along, and just as Sarah said, cast out that woman and the child and everything like that, just as they did not get along, these two approaches to God do not get along. You can either approach God by relying on yourself or by relying on His grace and His promises. These are two mutually incompatible ways of relating to God. And so Paul uses this story as kind of like a, a metaphor for explaining these two possible approaches to God. And says, no, if you are, if you are really the people of God, you must be the people of, not of self-reliance, but of faith, who trust in God and what He can do. And isn't that what's at the heart of the gospel? In the gospel, you trust that you could not do enough to be justified before God. In the gospel, you trust that Jesus' death had paid the blood price for you. In the gospel, you trust that you are now adopted in as a child of God, that God loves you as much as His very own Son, Jesus. In the gospel, you trust that you will pass through death unsinged. In the gospel, you trust that you have indestructible life at work in you. And this is why the gospel is different to every other religion. Every other major world religion or every other religion works on this single premise. The God, a God or the universe or the gods or some impersonal supernatural force has set up a system of accounting in a, in a way where these are the rules and these are the consequences. If you do good, this will happen to you. If you keep the rules, this will happen to you. If you break the rules, this is what will happen to you. And it's a system that's been set up and it's kind of like, well, now it's over to you. I've set up the rules and the system and it's over to you as to how you operate within them. Every religion has some set of rules or rituals that you need to keep in order to connect with God. But ultimately, it depends on you and relying upon yourself. The gospel is the only one that says, no, it's not about you or what you can do or what you can contribute, but it's all about God and what He has done and trusting in His promises. 
And so for this reason, Paul is warning the Galatians, saying, look, this, this approach to God, this religious approach is dangerous because it will not lead to life. No one will be justified by their own works. And he says it's dangerous. So you can think of it in this way. Imagine you had the opportunity of a lifetime to go to the bottom of the Mariana Trench. So that is the deepest part of the known ocean. And imagine that you were offered the option of either taking a purpose-built submarine or BYO sub, right? You can, get, you can put it together yourself. They'll give you the gear and you can DIY it as you head to whatever it is, like 10Ks underwater, 7Ks, 8Ks underwater. I don't know. Someone's, maybe someone's a marine biologist here. But as you head down under that much pressure, you'll be depending entirely upon your own skill and engineering. Or you can go with someone who has actually built one already and who, uh, the team of experts have actually assembled. Now, of course, you would trust in their work over your own. And Paul is trying to make the same point here. He says, when it comes to matters of life and death, don't muck around with it. He says, self-reliance will get you nowhere. I mean, we know enough of that anyway from our own experience that it doesn't get us anywhere. But Paul is saying to this Galatian church who first trusted in the grace of God and they're now tempted to go back to relying upon themselves and on their own efforts, he says, don't do it. That's not what the gospel is about. That's not what God's people are about and it never has been. You're not going back to some original way that God's people related to God. No, it's always been by faith in God's goodness and His promises time and time again from Abraham right through to now. And every time we lean on ourselves, the result is always disaster. So Paul says, trust instead in God. Trust in Him and His good promises. This is the way of the gospel. If you're here and someone who's unconvinced of who Jesus is, can I urge you to be sure about where you stand with Him? Martin Luther, who was the great reformer who had such an impact, even, not just on the religious society, but on our Western society as a whole, said that there are two things a person must do alone. You must do your own believing and you must do your own dying. That no one can go with you. That you need to work out your own worldview for yourself. And so I'd encourage you, if you haven't investigated the claims of Jesus for yourself, if what you think about Jesus is based on some second-hand opinions or something you think you heard someone maybe said about him, can I encourage you to get to know him for yourself? Because his claims are enormous. Jesus claims to have the answer to the biggest human problem, that is of death. That he has life in himself and that it's a free gift of grace. There's nothing that you have to do to achieve it. I can encourage you, if you've never investigated this seriously for yourself, to do that and to dive into it. But if you're here and a follower of Jesus, can I ask you this question? How many times have you relied on yourself and not the promises of God and wound up in disaster? How many times have you taken matters into your own hands and, God, and you've created a huge mess and God has been merciful and gracious anyway? How many times will it take for us before we just learn to trust God with our whole lives? Last week, uh, we made a huge mistake as a family. We went to Vivid on the Sunday night of the long weekend. And just bear with me, for this was the logic of why we did it. We thought, it's the long weekend. There are three nights there. People can get all their excitement out on night one and night two. And by the end, everyone will be gassed. No one will be about it. Turns out that's very wrong. The way it actually goes, if you could graph it, is um, enthusiasm sort of nearly peaks on the Friday night. 
wanes a little bit on the Saturday night and then resurges for the Sunday. So when we got into the city, there was just people everywhere. And just, you were just shoulder to shoulder with people. And as a, I'm not a crowds person and I'm an introvert. I don't like a lot of flesh on flesh with people I don't know. But the whole time was just this for a whole night. And so the first thing we did was we got the kids together and we told them the golden rule of being in crowds. Did you get this from your parents when you were a kid? Does anyone know where I'm going with this? You say to your kids, if you get lost, don't move. That's right. Stay exactly where you are. Because what happens, if a kid gets lost in a crowd like that and they try to find themselves, they can end up just kilometers away. And in any, in any normal time when you want to get them to walk, it would be impossible. But in that situation, they'll just, they get superhuman strength and off they go. So you say to them, stay where you are. Trust me. We will come and find you. Don't rely on yourself. Don't rely on your own, the mercury. It's, your, your compass is completely off. Just stay there. And it's hard for kids. They didn't get lost, by the way. We were fine because I held them by their hoods like the entire way through. They were either there and then one on the shoulders as well. So anyway, um, if you want to know more of the details of that tawdry night, I'm happy to fill you in. <clears throat> but the reason it's so hard for kids and the reason you have to drill it into them is because it's so counterintuitive, isn't it? When you're in that situation as a kid, the thing that feels most natural and normal is, I'll take matters into my own hands. I'll go and find mum and dad. I'll go and find someone. I'll get to a spot where I can be found. And the more you try and do it yourself, the more lost you're going to get. Isn't it exactly the same with us? That God has to say to us, trust me. Trust my promises. Have I ever let you down? Have I ever been unfaithful? In the gospel, have I not got come good on all the promises I made to my people throughout the ages? Have I not shown myself to be faithful and reliable and more trustworthy even than yourself? Have you not learned time and time again that the more you rely on yourself, the worse it gets? <clears throat> and yet still, what feels most intuitive or natural is, Nah, God, I've duffed it a few times before, but I've got a really good feeling about this one. Paul says here, that God's people are a people of faith. Do we trust His promises? In the gospel, we trust him with our very lives. So why would we not trust him with anything less? And that is a good question, isn't it? If it is the case that God is so good and he is so faithful, why wouldn't we trust him with everything? Why do we often so, so often take matters into our own hands and step outside of his will for our lives and do things that he has commanded us not to do because we can't trust him? <coughs> well, I think it's because of this. I think trusting him is so counterintuitive because so often we can't see the results straight away. But if I do something, if I take it into my own hands, I will at least be able to see something for it. I mean, last week, Galatians spoke into the matter of idols. How it is that we can make an idol out of anything. Out of other people's approval, out of gaining control, out of getting power or status, or out of pleasure. And why do we often, so often turn back to idols? Because it's something tangible within our experience that we can lean upon, even though it destroys us. Even though, like last week, we saw it leads to slavery. But so often we do it because we're afraid that God's not going to come through for us. Now, it's funny, isn't it? If you've grown up being a person who is somewhat self-reliant, it may be the case that you even project that onto God to where you just feel like, you know what, people just don't come through for me. That's the pattern of my life. And so honestly, I don't really expect that God's going to come through for me either. 
that actually if anything's going to happen, it's going to come about from me doing something rather than in trusting in God. Paul says, just remember the gospel. Remember how good God has been to you in Christ Jesus. Remember how faithful He has been to you. That when you get to a moment where it feels like the most intuitive thing is just to rely upon yourself, to remember that God can be trusted and He will come through for you. And it is difficult at times when He doesn't come through in our timing or in the way that we hoped. But God is faithful and has been. God has been faithful to us as a church community as a whole, but also as individuals. And I get it. You might be at a point now where you feel like you've been trusting God for quite a while, maybe in a single particular matter, and it just feels like He is not going to come through. Can I encourage you to look deep into the Scripture and to see the track record of faithfulness that God has had, knowing that if He has been faithful in the past, He will be faithful in the future. That if He is faithful in handling our lives and the problem of sin and death and everything that comes with it, that He can be faithful with anything short of that. That we might be a people who trust in Him and trust in His promises because He alone is good. Let's pray that God would make us a people who experience His goodness as we trust Him and His promises together. Let's pray. Father, we repent of our self-reliance and how we are so prone to, to take matters into our own hands, to falter at the time when we should be trusting in You. We just pray that You'd give us strength to remember that You are a good and heavenly Father. That just as a good and faithful parent who instructs their child to wait for them, that we too might wait for you. That we would trust that your ways are higher than our ways and your thoughts are higher than our thoughts and that your wisdom is deeper than our wisdom. That we might rely on you and trust you with our whole heart. Father, give us strength and help us to encourage one another in this. All that we might see you at work in our, in our soul and in this church community. Father, we pray this for the sake of your holy name. Amen.